introducing Mr. Kawada himself, my dad. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you're listening, however you're listening, this is Quantum of History. I am your host, Daniel Walsh, and welcome to another episode. Today's episode is all about the choppers. Get to the chopper. Uh, it's about helicopters, and I'm very excited to do this, and our guest today is fantastic. He's uh, Robert Purdy. He's a combat uh, helicopter pilot. He's been doing this now for almost 30 years. Huge, avid Bond fan. Great interview. I really loved how this came out. So I'm going to give uh, the history, then we're going to get right into the guest. I'm going to try to keep it short and sweet. I would love to try to get on YouTube again. I just, I, I just do not have time to edit. So if anybody's out there that really enjoys editing YouTube videos, uh, hit me in the DM because I would, I need, I need a partner to do this on YouTube. There's no way I can do this all by myself. But I am very excited for today's guest. I'm very excited for today's episode. I think you guys will really enjoy it. So without further ado, let's get into the chopper. Let's get to the chopper. James Bond is known for his style, his gadgets, his girls, and his tropes. And when we think of James Bond, we think of Martinis, Astons, Omegas, and Tom Ford. And while all these help make what Bond is, one trope that's sometimes underappreciated in the franchise, and the one that has been in every James Bond movie except The Man with the Golden Gun and Dr. No. Of course I'm talking about helicopters. Bond somehow finds, always finds his way into one. Whether it be driven by remotely by Blowfield or doing backflips in the skies of Mexico City, and Bond isn't the only one that finds his, his way into a helicopter. Bond villains love themselves some choppers too. Whether it be Blowfield making his escape, the gorgeous Naomi chasing Bond in the Lotus, or Safin taking away Matilda and Madeline, the Bond baddies find their way into the helicopter. With that being said, let's look at the history of the helicopter, how it came to be an integral aircraft in modern history, and let's take one more moment to sit and think about Naomi piloting one. Good. That's good stuff. Right, so Webster's Dictionary defines a helicopter as an aircraft whose lift is derived from the aerodynamic forces acting on one or more powered rotors turning about substantially vertical axis. Uh, yeah, there you go. That's what Webster's defines it as. What makes helicopters so advantageous is that they can take off vertically and suspend themselves in the air. Airplanes are great for getting from point A to point B, but in the world of James Bond, it requires an aircraft capable of maneuvering the constantly changing, fast-paced demands of the action sequences. The idea of the helicopter is not new. The first recorded vertical flight apparatus was found in Chinese in China. Um, these Chinese flying tops that were around 400 A.D. These toys can still be found today, where the rotors are propelled through pulling a string and watching the toy fly in the air. It's those little things where you pull really hard. And uh, the the wheel spins, and then you fly up in the air. Those actually are thousands of years old, and they were invented in China. Humans racked their brains designing an aircraft that could make humans fly with them. Leonardo da Vinci famously designed the helicap air screw to try to bring man first to flight. Multiple other incarnations were designed after da Vinci. One by Frenchman Paul Carnu, which is the first to lift off the ground. It was not maneuverable and had to be held in place, but it did come off the ground. And the Germans in the 1930s made helicopters that traveled 143 miles and could reach an altitude of 11,000 feet. These helicopters worked, but barely, and they were not practical. It wasn't until September 14, 1939 that the modern helicopter was born in Stratford, Connecticut. 
Russian-born Igor Sikorsky immigrated to the United States and then went on to design, build, and pilot the world's first functional helicopter, the VS-300. The flight only lasted a couple of seconds, but it was enough to get patent and sell it to Henry Ford. The VS-300 looked very much like a 28-foot version of Little Nelly. The helicopter has come a long way since its first inception as a bare-bones rotor and blade system. The evolution of the helicopter has been captured all the way through all the James Bond films. The helicopter made its debut in Russia and from Russia with Love with the chase scene in the hills where Bond ultimately is able to shoot down the, the Hiller UH-12 helicopter. The Hiller UH-12 was the premier helicopter of the time, and the design still influences today's model. In Thunderball, you could see it where the helicopters were then equipped with water and landing capabilities. Bond and Felix can be seen flying a Bell 47J helicopter as they searched the shark waters for the bombs. In You Only Live Twice, the iconic Little Nelly was introduced. Designed and piloted by Royal Air Force Wing Commander Ken Wallace, the Wallace WA-116 Little Nelly Auto Gyro was the highlight of, the, of You Only Live Twice. Wallace's Little Nelly Ultralight is still used today to survey, scout, and even smuggle drugs. Drug cartels have utilized these, as they're called ultralights, to fly narcotics over the border using hinged dropping apparatuses attached to them to drop narcotics over the border. In 1973, The Spy Who Loved Me brought Bond series to have its first female helicopter pilot, Batty Naomi. Once she got back out of the bikini and into the cockpit of the Bell 206 Jet Ranger helicopter, she gave Bond and his Lotus all he could handle. Naomi mirrors the real-life Hannah Reach, who was in the mid-1930s became the first female helicopter pilot. She was used in World War II to test out the helicopters as new models were created. In Goldeneye, Trevelyan, Zenya, and Omarov work in unison to take the Airbus Tiger helicopter from the French. The Airbus Tiger helicopter shows off throughout much of the movie, even making for some great drama as Bond nearly meets his end with Natalia. If only it weren't for that perfectly convenient red ejector seat button there to save the day. Bond could have had his end in the Tiger. In Tomorrow Never Dies, a helicopter is used like a weed eater that's going to, uh, and then Bond does Evil Knievel with uh, Wei Lin on his back. In World Is Not Enough, the helicopter shows how it can be used to clear trees or even cut BMWs. Finally, Inspector Bond shows off the Messerschmitt Bokublom Blue. <laughs> I just butchered that. But uh, if you saw how this thing is spelled, you would butcher it too. The Messerschmitt Bokublom Blue. Yeah, that's. I'm really, I don't know how much better I can do that. Uh, it was the helicopter by backflipping and fighting his way through the skies of Mexico City. The Spectre stunt was performed by Chuck Aaron, who was a Red Bull pilot and who was an expert aerobrat. If you, you can see him on Instagram where he has a lot of videos. If you look at Red Bull helicopters, the guy Chuck Aaron, the guy who did the stunt inspector, he does amazing things. If you want to check out his videos, they're really interesting. So it was great. And Inspector, and then in No Time to Die, the, the, the helicopter was featured, just wasn't as prominent. But throughout the entire series, helicopters have been a prominent part of James Bond. The movies, the, spec the spectacle, and I just feel like the helicopter and Bond just match. So now we've got the history. Now let's get on our guest, and I'm really excited for him again. Robert Purdy, he's been doing he's been flying helicopters for 30 years. He flew in Afghanistan, Iraq. He's been in North Korea, and now he's a emergency helicopter pilot in uh, in in Texas. So he's been a whole lifetime of servitude. So definitely give him our respects, and it's going to be a lot of fun listening to what this guy has to say in the stories. Without further ado. Robert. I took a drive today 
All right, I want to welcome in my buddy Rob Purdy, helicopter extraordinaire. Thanks for coming in, my man. Finally, finally, we've been trying to do this for a while now, so I'm very excited yeah. that we finally get to do this tonight. I'm excited. Rob, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself. Yeah, great. Hey, I'm glad everybody tuned in so that uh, you could listen to Donnie and I review uh, Blue is the Warmest Color by Leah, Leah Sadu. Uh, oh, wait, no, 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 we're not here. No, I could, I could give you a play-by-play for that one and the one with Keanu Reeves and Anna DeArmas. I, I know those better oh. than the Bond film, to tell you the truth. Uh, yeah, we've been spending a lot of time with those at work lately, but that's a whole nother <laughs> podcast probably. So no, I really a uh, pleasure to, to be here, Donnie. Pleasure to talk to you. I'm, uh, I'm glad to be on. My name's uh, Rob Purdy. I'm a helicopter pilot, but I've been doing it all my adult life. Uh, some people find that interesting. Some don't. It's my my only appreciable skill, as I like to say. I spent <laughs> 26 years in the, in the U.S. Army flying every version of attack helicopter that they had at the time. And then I uh, retired in 2017 from the army and decided that wanted to continue serving in some capacity. So now I'm in Houston flying air ambulance with uh, Memorial Hermann Life Flight, and uh, just happy to to speak about helicopters and uh, to talk with Donnie and, and and the audience here. Well, I was definitely excited to have you. I got to tell you, when I was a kid, there was three things I wanted to be. I wanted to be in law enforcement. I wanted to eventually be a lawyer, and then I wanted to also be a helicopter pilot. I, I got two or three. I, one day I got to get that helicopter thing. But there was just something fascinating about helicopters. I've always had like a romanticized idea of what it's like in, in every two Bond films. Uh, so clearly the James Bond franchise loves them just as much as I do. Um, so yeah. tell me how you got to, how you, how you got to go from enlisting to becoming a helicopter pilot. Similar, similar story to what you say. You know, I'll just, I'll just start with, I had a very patient father and he would, he would allow the family to stop at every, museum between Arkansas and going and spending some time on the Redneck Riviera on the on the Gulf Coast in the summertime. <laughs> and my dad was real good about stopping at the USS Alabama and stopping at Eglin Air Force Base and Pensacola and letting me spend as much time in those museums as I wanted to. And uh, growing up, going to every air show and there was a TV show called Black Sheep Squadron. I just developed a, a love for military aviation, not just aviation in general, but military aviation. I really wanted to be a military pilot in some capacity. Uh, and that, that took on a passion all its own up until uh, I got into my sophomore year of college and was starting to run out of money, working at a machine shop and still had a passion for military aviation and started taking some aptitude tests for the Navy and the Marine Corps and Hey, you're doing good on your test, but you, you got to finish your degree. Well, lo and behold, I had uh, I had seen a, a Army National Guard Cobra land at a, a local festival we had in Malvern, Arkansas, called the Brickfest, and I just I just fell in love with the sexiness, the slickness of a, of an AH-1 Cobra, and that also coincided with an Army recruiter in the town my college was that called me and said, Hey, you know what would you say if I could have you in flight school by this time next year. And I said, hey, I'm listening. Um, I was able to finish my bachelor's degree later, but uh, got got fortunate with the right recruiter and was able to get picked up for what was then called warrant officer flight training. So I, I went straight from basic training to Fort Rucker, Alabama and, and started flight school with within a matter of a year. Really? Uh, so that's that's how my path got started. I was very very fortunate, very blessed that I had good mentors and good people to keep me on the on the path because a lot of folks didn't even know that option existed uh, back then. It was called high school to flight school, and I think now they call it street to seat. Uh, <laughs> that's but that was the that was the path that I used. I was just a punk kid that had run out of money for college, 
and uh, was literally put my spring semester books on the shelf and went to army basic training for eight weeks and then had a week off, did some chores for my mom and then found myself at Fort Rucker, Alabama and warrant officer candidate school and then started flight school the summer of 91. That's what I always wondered. I always wondered if you had to go through different steps or if you could literally go from basic training to helicopter school. So that's, yeah, that's you can awesome. do that. It's, you can do that. It's you must have uh, had to like score really well on those tests or the aptitude test, or is, is it really competitive? Uh, it, it was back then. I think it still is. I, I think that the biggest detractor from it is a lot of people just don't know the option is available. And some recruiters, it's more work on the part of the recruiter that they have to put in to get people to go that path. Whereas a lot of army recruiters, and I'm not bad mouthing recruiters. I just, I know what some of them do and so what some of them don't do. They're more inclined to to want to put guys in that are interested in aviation as crew chiefs, uh, mechanics, things of that nature. And then they say, hey, just get your feet wet in the Army, see how you like it. And then you can put in for warrant officer flight training later if it's something you like. Yeah. Whereas opposed, if, if, if you're going in specifically wanting to fly, that that is an option to just go uh, high school to flight school or street to seat, as they call it now. That's great. That's great. I know when I was going through um, Border Patrol, they, I was wanted to go to... Um, I wanted to go to San Diego, but they offered me Deming, New Mexico. And then I took it Oof. because being, being dumb and uh, not knowing any better, I went there. And then afterwards I was like, what would have happened? If, Cause I'd put my, I wanted to be San Diego. And they're like, Oh, we would have given it to you if you would just waited a little bit longer. I'm like, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> if of, I'd only known. <laughs> instead of being stuck in Satan's butthole, I could have been on, on the beach. Unbelievable. These damn recruiters, I'm telling you, they got me with my recruiting video. But that's that's amazing. Like 26 years in that. So what was flight school like? How how long was flight school? Flight school was fantastic. It was I was I was in a mix. So I was I was even though I was only had my basic training experience. So I'm just a, a punk kid. Uh, I still had a lot of guys in my flight school class that had significant time, uh, not only in the army already. They were already sergeants, staff sergeants, uh, some even uh, sergeant first classes. Um, there were some guys from the Navy, some guys from the Marine Corps. There were some guys from the Air Force that had done inter-service transfers and were going through the same program I was. So I was blessed with having a lot of more senior guys to show me the ropes on how the military worked, how the Army worked in conjunction with also learning how to fly. Um, but that's really not what you asked me. What, what, what I did was it was called IARW was initial entry rotary wing training. And I went to basic flight in the UH-1 Huey, which everybody knows from uh, Diamonds Are Forever fame and some other Bond movies. And uh, also from the Vietnam War, the hero of the Vietnam War. So I did basic and or what they called primary. And then I did instruments all in the UH-1 Huey. Uh, and the way flight school was structured back then, you then went to different a pipeline that was called multi-track. And you either stayed in Huey's, you went into the OH-58 Alpha Charlie, which uh, the civilian world mostly knows as a Bell Jet Ranger. And then you could go into the UH-60 Blackhawks. And then the fourth track was AH-1 Cobras. And then so based on your, your order of merit list and how your grades were, the top guy got their selection. I was not the top guy, but uh, I wasn't the last guy either, but not that many people wanted to go Cobras because all the Cobra guys were getting sent immediately to Korea at that time. This was 92, 93 timeframe. I graduated in 92. Yeah, so, so there was Gulf not War's a- Golf over, right? I mean, by the, then now Golf War's over. Yeah. Now. I was actually on the bayonet course in basic training when the ground war started for the Gulf War. So I was, I was on paper, 
I was in the army when Desert Shield, Desert Storm was going on, but I in no way, shape or form had anything to do with it except being in basic training. <laughs> so so you go to you, you get the A1H1 Cobra and then you go to Korea. Why Korea? Korea was just there. There were three attack battalions in Korea at that time. And Korea is only a year long tour. So the turnover is very fast. And the permanent change of station cycle drives the train in the army and where people move. So since people only stay there a year, there's always this constant turnover. It's, it, they see it some now with the AH-64 community as well. But at that time, guys were only spending a year in Korea in Cobras. So almost everybody coming out of flight school was immediately assigned to, to Korea as a Cobra guy. It was very rare. Go ahead. Go no, finish your seven. It was rare for anybody to go. There were two, the entire year I was in flight school, there were only two guys that did not get assigned to Korea out of flight school and they got assigned to Fort Drum. Oh, up in New York? Yeah, right, right. You but then those two, guys, <laughs> those two dudes ended up going to uh, Somalia. So they actually got into the heat before I did. <laughs> really? I bet you they like Somalia yeah. more than Watertown. Watertown's a cold ass town. It's um, cold. Some of the coldest I've ever been in my life was spending some time uh, training some guys up at uh, at Fort Fort Drum. It is it is seriously cold up there. Yeah. I I grew up to give you an idea of how cold what Watertown is. I grew up about another hour and a half north of of uh, Watertown. It was even colder where I grew up, so it was. Oh. I, I know Watertown pretty well. So yeah, when for a kid that grew up in Arkansas, that was pretty seriously cold for me. Oh, that's got to be a, a big shock. <laughs> Correct. So when you're in, when you're in Korea, how many times a day do you fly? The, how many times? How many times a week? How much? How much flight time do you actually get? Well, at that time, I was such a new pilot. You're you're kind of you're, you're fighting for scraps. You know, you'll go on maintenance test flights. You'll do whatever you can to get seat time in the aircraft. So, as a as a new warrant officer, one right out of flight school, I was fortunate to get to fly maybe twice a week. Um, and obviously, when you were on field training exercises or gunnery exercises you flew more regularly based on the schedule that was happening. But as far as I'd say on average, about twice a week, twice a week, that's, that's good. How, uh -huh. many how, how many hours are you in the, are you in the air for each flight or does it vary? I know these are, probably, uh, just, these are very mundane questions, but I actually have no idea. No, absolutely. It would just depend on hel helicopters for the most part, you can plan on about a two, two and a half hours on, on a bag of gas. And just depending on the nature of what you're trying to do, if you're out doing a check ride and you're doing, all the required maneuvers to get your evaluation complete, you can expect to spend up to two hours flying, sometimes with a refuel, a hot gas en route, and then you continue your training. I'd say on the average, an, an Army training flight is about two hours with gunnery flights upwards of you know, four to five hours with uh, doing hot refuel in the, in the FARC, the forward Army refueling point. Mm -hmm. Wow, that, that's awesome. Um, what, what, you know what? when you look at like the, all the controls and dials of, of the helicopter was it intimidating at first or was it pretty, did you catch on to everything pretty quickly or is it just one of those things where once you learn language and once you learn what everything is, it's not nearly as intimidating as somebody who just sits in the cockpit for the first time. Yeah. Com completely intimidating at first. I, I had never even sat. Well, I said, take, take it back. I had sat in a Cobra uh, at the one that was at the static display that I talked about earlier at the brick fest that I went to in Malvern but I had never flown in a helicopter at all until my first flight uh, flying out of low army heliport in Fort Rucker, Alabama in, in June of 1991. So I, you remember that scene back in 
airplane when uh, when Ted Stryker's like looking at the instrument panel and it just seems to keep going and going and going. <laughs> I'm, I'm dating myself now and probably some guys in your audience, but uh, that that's what my experience was at first when I looked at it. But you've got fantastic instructors with a tremendous amount of time and you learn what's called a cross check and you learn to, to look at what's important at the right time. And you develop a scan to keep things uh, in view that uh, are required to, to do what you're doing at the time. So it's, it's overwhelming at first, but just, I think like anything else you do with, with time, patience and training and good instruction, you, you pick it up. Yeah. So it's not as easy as James Bond makes it look where he just pulls up and he calls it a day. Well, you know, Commander Bond, I don't, I don't know what kind of training and background he's got. So <laughs> apparently he can fly and do anything. He just jumps right in little Nelly and starts shooting down other aircraft. <laughs> would you, would you think you'd be able to fly a little Nelly? I'd have to give it a shot just on, just on principle, <laughs> right? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You have to, you would absolutely have to. I'd be, I, I definitely want to see that happen one time. Um, so you, you go through, you get out of Korea and then where do you go after Korea? My, my assignment after Korea was uh, I went to Fort Hood, Alabama, Fort Hood, Alabama, stupid, Fort Hood, Texas. And I actually asked to go to Texas because that was as close to my hometown at the time. So my wife and I ended up in Fort Hood, Texas, and I ended up flying Cobras for another three years and uh, flew Cobras there until 1996 and then got picked up for the Alpha Model Apache course in the summer of 96. And then that's when that's where I, I got the, the bulk of my military time was in A, D, and E, A-864s. Is, is that, is that basically Apaches, you mean? For the Apaches, yes, sir. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, yeah. I've flown all three models of Apaches and flown two of the three in combat. I think for, for my, people my age, I think I, we I generally associate Apaches with the, with the military hel helicopter the most. Sure. Um, wh where, did you go, where did you go from there? For you, so you go to Texas, and then what happens next? you're going to be amazed. I went right back to Korea because again, and anytime you wanted something out of the army pre pre uh, war on terror days, it, you'd almost had to say, okay, well, I'll go to Korea. And I wanted the Apache course. Okay. Well, you're going to go to Korea for me for a year. Okay. I'll go back to Korea. So <laughs> I, I, I sucked up an, another year in Korea to get the Apache course and then uh, ended up at, at Camp Humphreys for another, another year or two or in, in Korea flying the alpha model Apache. I mean, that's a hell of a price to pay for a course, right? To have to go back to Korea. Yeah, it was at that time because my, my wife and I had, we had spent a year in Korea already as newlyweds and uh, you, you come home and, hey, uh, I got the Apache course. Oh, that's awesome. I know you've been wanting it. Uh, yeah, we're going to have to go back to Korea. Oh, that's not so great. <laughs> <laughs> did you get but, to you explore know, you, Korea a lot or did you have to basically stay on base? I wouldn't say a lot, Donnie, but we, we, uh, we were we were not stay home people. We we did some adventurous trips, kind of out on uh, on bikes out in the, the mountains that were down around Camp Humphreys. Uh, we didn't take any any tours like uh, you know like like Thomas is the master of the Orient. I always hear him talking about China and Hong Kong, and I I, I look back on that now and I'm like, man, we should have went and saw some more of that part of the world. Um, but we we adventured some but not very far from mm -hmm. from the base and uh, the people that spoke english <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i could see that. you were in your 20s still at this time right 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 i was yeah. uh, my wife and i both were i was 26 27 years old and you're if you're not what they call command sponsored you're not allowed to have a car in korea so you're you're reliant on on some other people that have some some junker cars that have been passed around from from different people as they've come in and out of country and you're reliant on 
public transportation and army transportation. So it, it cripples your ability to travel around the country probably as, as comfortably as you'd like to. It's not as easy as you can do in Germany. Yeah. And I'm sure even being twenties, you don't quite realize that this is an opportunity to, to actually explore and see things. It's almost like, all right, well, I don't know. Just, you just don't understand the, the, the gravity of what you have. You know, I, correct, I feel like, correct. I feel like that's the way I was in my twenties. Like I didn't understand um, the enjoyment of travel. I didn't grow up traveling, you know, like it wasn't part of my DNA or anything like that. So now I, I just, I'm dying to travel, but. hundred percent. Same way. My, my wife and I both, you know, Oh, we're in Korea again. We hated it. So we want to get back to shopping malls and, you know, 24 hour Walmarts. We didn't appreciate the opportunity we had with what we were surrounded with at, at that time in our lives. Mm -hmm. Yep. I, I felt the same way when I was in but, Mexico. But we made up for it when back. we went to Germany. <laughs> uh, I'm sure. Do tell the, the Germany stories now. Uh, it was a while before we went to Germany. So we left, left Korea for the last time in 1997. Um, and then after that, went to the Apache instructor pilot course, and then was blessed to be assigned to Savannah, Georgia. Now I was gone a lot while I was in Savannah with different deployments. Uh, but I have no complaints about the city of Savannah. That was a wonderful place to live. We enjoyed our time there. Uh, that was also when the, the, 9-11 happened, uh, the Iraq invasion happened, went through all that, and then ended up going to Germany actually after that assignment, went to Germany in 2004. 2004. How much right. time did you spend, how much time did you spend uh, in, the, in the war on terror? Uh, I've got five deployments. I've done two Iraq deployments. I've done three Afghanistan deployments. Uh, I've done two deployments to Kuwait, but everybody will tell you that Kuwait really doesn't count as a deployment. That's just more of a, a necessary evil sometimes. Yeah. I got a couple of buddies who just got back from Kuwait and they said the same thing. One's in the air force. And then one guy was in Djibouti. Um, he was in the, he was in the army, but you know, you know, thank you for your service, man. I mean, I, 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 oh, I appreciate it's, that. It's, it's so much different being a helicopter pilot. I feel because you are just, you got to have balls the size of steel because you you're bringing that huge ass target. And you must feel every time you go up in the air that you are a giant, like your all the attention is now on you once you get in the air. Uh, I, I was somewhat nervous first time flew into combat, but I, I knew that I had the best machine that uh, the money could buy. I had had all the confidence in the world, the Apache. The Apache got a bad rap early on for maintenance, but I never have understood where that came from because I, I never had an Apache let me down in combat, in training. I've, I've never missed a mission. I've, I've flown them full of holes um, and have have never missed a mission, have always come through on what was asked of me. And the aircraft always got me home through you know, probably over 1500 combat hours. So I've got, I've got no complaints about it. I, I love the machine, still love it to this day. That's insane. And you know, I even hear you speak about your time, you speak very technically about, you know, I just knew, I knew the machine, I trusted my skills. And I'm not even trying to come close to comparing it, but I had, I was talking in one of the interviews and one of the guys was talking to me and he said, you know, talking about going into, you know, going to a dangerous situation. I was like, yeah, well, you know, I was going to just win. And I think I almost hear in the same thing that you didn't even think about anything bad to happen. You just trusted your machine. You knew you had the talent to drive it. And the fear wasn't there because you trusted yourself. Was that kind of how you, the way you felt? Yeah, I, I had trust in our in our maintainers. I had trust in the equipment. I, I knew how how tolerant it was to battle damage. And the thing is just a, a flying tank. It's built to protect its crew. It's built to take a pounding and come back for more and just still bring its pilots back. And I think that when you're when you're flying in combat, especially, you're you're so focused on 
the task at hand yeah. and supporting the guy on the ground, supporting whatever uh, convoy you're supporting, whatever reconnaissance mission you're on. You're not you're you're not worried about you know what may or may not happen with the aircraft or who's who may or may not shoot at you. You're you're so focused on getting those tasks accomplished that are on your mission that you just you react when the combat situations occur because you just you just got enough confidence in yourself and the machine through through your training and through your instructors and, and knowing that the aircraft's going to take care of you as long as you know what you're doing yeah i mean again all the balls in the world man that's 1500 that's crazy man i i i feel the same way not i'm not at all trying to compare my situation that i do compared to yours but same thing i always felt like it was i would be nervous in the lead up to stuff so like if you're going to hit a dangerous house or you do something like that but once you're in the when it's in it, it's it's just like autopilot. You just go through it, and there's nothing. But it was this, it was the quiet before the silence and stuff like that. Sure, um, that's that you, same way. Do you have this kind of same thing? Like, it wasn't like once you're in it and you're going, and it's your mind kind of goes away. But it's the maybe maybe the buildup or the getting the che- the fuel checks or just checking the machine. What when was your time when you felt like oh boy, or did that ever happen to you? Maybe you just got nervous the size of of cojones here. I think different situations bring different emotions and different reactions out of you because like if I know in, in 2005, when we were in Afghanistan, I was at a forward operating base called Salerno. It was very close to the, the Pakistan border. It was in the coast area and we received a lot of indirect fire. Uh, the base was, would get targeted regularly. And when it got targeted, if you were on what's called QRF quick reaction force, it's, it's an immediate, adrenaline rush to get to the machine and get in the air and try to start doing coordination to find where the the indirect fire came from so you can catch them and you don't you don't realize you know there's no time to worry about it in other words you know your aircraft's pre-flighted your gears pre-positioned ready to go you're jumping in cranking the auxiliary power unit and you're getting the aircraft up and gone whereas what were probably brought the most nerves or when you would do deliberate operations where you may have a, a 36 to 48 hour planning cycle and you've got good or sometimes not so good threat intel, you know what you're going to be facing. They, they may be expecting you. Uh, there's all this deliberate movements. And that when it's like that, you've got a little more time to think about it. And um, certainly the Iraq invasion in 2003, because my God, we, we were sitting in Kuwait as early as January of 2003. You know, we didn't kick off the invasion until late February, early March. So you had all that time to sit there. You know, are we going to get gassed? What are we going to be facing? Where's the Republican Guard going to be? What type of uh, air defense threat are we going to face? Because you just don't know, but you've got so much time to think about it. Yeah. So that's, I think that's when fear and nerves come in, is when you have more time to think about it, as opposed to the more direct action where you just have to get in and react and go. Was there, you know, feel free not not to share if you don't want to, but it did, was there a particular story that really was like, oh, that was like, that was my balls to the walls moment? Oh, gosh. Uh, it, you know, there's probably so many of them. Um, yeah. I, I guess one that, one that stands out for me was, uh, it was actually on, they were holding elections in Afghanistan in 2005. And ironically enough, I think the, the elections were being held on, on September 11th. You know, I don't know if you remember the news or not. They were everybody that voted got like the purple thumb, and mm-hmm, yeah, that's that's how they kept track of the votes. And it was a it was a tense day because they didn't want any any action going on to speak of around the around the uh, the 
the area that we were working, this was when, again, I was in Salerno, we were in the Coast Bowl. Well, we had a, an air, air weapons team out flying and supporting a, an ODA team that was on the ground. And we had just gone back to Salerno to take on fuel and we got the call that they were in contact. <clears throat> so, okay, so they got in contact. So we, we called our operations center and said, hey, we need to help these guys. We need to respond now. Well, hold on. We have to get that cleared through the, the it was CJTF 76, was Combined Joint Task Force 76. So we've got people asking permission for us to be able to go help these guys. We know they're in contact. And it just took, it seemed it was agonizing to sit there because they were so paranoid about any type of uh, engagements happening while the elections were going on that they were hesitant to be able to kind of to release the hound, so to speak, and let us go mm -hmm. up there and, and do what we needed to do. And when they when they finally did, uh, it was it was almost too late to really go up there. And it, it wasn't it wasn't a terrible situation. I mean, the guys were in contact, but they were they were separating themselves. They weren't in in extreme danger of the, of of getting hit. Were you by the time to we got comes the, the entire time? Correct. Yeah, that's, that's the most that's, frustrating that's, thing. That's, that's, that, that. When you hear the radio and you're like, <clears throat> you hear him taking contact or you hear think people, you, you guys in trouble, that's, that's agonizing right. to sit so, by. So, and, and that's not as exciting, but as far as and something that's driving you emotionally, when you know there's guys that need your help and you're tasked yeah. to support them and you're trying to get it cleared through the right channels to be able to get up there and help them, uh, it took longer than it should have. So I will say that the emotions were high by the time we did get on station and um, take care of what we needed to take care of <laughs> yeah and, and we did <laughs> i'm sure i will we'll read between the lines on that one but um you know that that is that's the worst that's the worst to hear you guys down and people calling free help and then watching as people sit there with their dick in their hands not deciding what to right. do um, right right and it's like these that, that was frustrating and, and i wasn't mad at our operations center because they had their orders just like we had our orders and Hey, we're trying to get you clearance to get up there to, and to help engage. Yeah. I was like, okay, you understand that these guys are in contact, right? Yep. Yep. We're tracking, we're tracking, we're watching it on Burke chat. And okay. Uh, yeah. So by the time we got up there, we, we let them have it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just something about the radio. You can, cause you just, you hear the radio traffic and you just are dying to get there. So goddamn badly that, right. Yeah, that, that, that's the worst part. And every um, engagement's like that, every engagement. And that's when, when I was an instructor, I stressed that so much to guys. I'm like, guys, it, that, that kid on the ground, that I say kid, I, I, I don't mean that derogatory, that, that 19, yeah. 20 year old on the ground, he expects you to know what the fuck you're doing, pardon my French. And it, that's why this, the, when you're training, you've got to take this seriously because he doesn't know if you were first in flight school or last in flight school. All he knows is that you're his eye in the sky, you're his gun in the sky, and you've got to know how to employ this helicopter to be able to help him when he needs you most, he's counting on you to have that level of expertise. So don't be in flight school for the sunglasses and the fancy uniforms, be yeah. in flight school because you want your mind on the mission and to be able to support that kid on the ground when he needs it. It didn't, did it ever drive you absolutely fucking insane <laughs> when somebody would, when you'd hear it and you didn't see somebody like, let's say something's on the radio, right? And you see uh, other people not having the same reaction to the radio traffic that you had did. Or when you're, you said you were training the new ones, does it ever, do you have to get this, that visceral reaction when you see somebody not taking the radio traffic or not taking this training seriously? Cause you know, of the course. implications of it. Of course. And it was worse after having been in combat um, when, when new pilots would come in and you're doing training because you knew the gravity of not knowing 
what you were doing. Yeah. Because if it's, and just like, I'm sure you, you've seen it in your line of work, everybody's line of work. You've got varying levels of competency and everything. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, the army community, the army aviation community is no different. So some, some guys are in it for the right reasons. Some guys are maybe not in it for the right reasons. Some guys take it more seriously. You've got some guys that are better than others. Um, so it's, it's glaring when somebody probably doesn't know exactly what they're doing, especially when, when they're needed on the ground. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, it, it just would drive me. It was one time there was, um, we just got done. My, my, we just got in this fight and this gun battle and not like gun battle, but fighting over a gun and, um, come back and I get out and this, this, this new officer is coming out and he's vaping and like nonchalantly walking. And we had just like dropped, it's called a signal 13, just dropping, like we need help. You know, we're getting surrounded or whatever. And he comes out with vaping. And I took this kid and I threw him against the wall. Like <laughs> I, if you don't take that fucking vape out of your mouth and you know, you're already wound up from being in the fight and stuff. But when he came sure. out, like not feeling that same thing, literally vaping, I, I, I if I could have shoved that vape down his throat, I would have. Um, absolutely yeah, the same thing so yeah you, you, it's definitely that it's it's rough so uh i more I, you have to have so being the helicopter pilot you'd have to be almost the most nerved right i mean you have to you you are the eye of over everybody so many people are relying you on you not just um I, I feel like you guys have to be completely even keeled all the time not too high not too low is that kind of how you feel and even talking to you and your personality and the way you pre- present yourself I kind of already get the feeling that's how you are. You, you're pretty even personality. You don't go up, you don't go out down too much. Hey, I, I think you've got all kinds of personalities in, in army aviation, especially in the attack community. And I think those that, those that ex, excel are the ones that obviously can keep their, their cool and stress situations because no situation gets easier with a lot of emotion and a lot of uh, stress added to it. Yeah. And I had a, had a great commander stress that to me early on. And I thought, man, that really makes sense. So you, if, if anything else, if you can display professionalism, you can display cool calmness. It's always going to help the situation more than you realize. Mm-hmm. And I, I always tried to stress that in training and I always tried to stress that to even guys on the ground that were helping, uh, the, the, the calmer you can stay. And you know, what, what brings calmness, proficiency, training, knowing your craft, that inherently makes you calmer and more confident in what you're trying to accomplish for them. So that was another reason to stress that in training. So, Hey, you know, know what you're doing and the confidence and the calm will, will speak for itself when you're, when it comes time to support those guys on the ground. Mm-hmm. Yep. Absolutely. Well, that's great. And so you go, um, so you go, we're at 2005, I believe you said, and then so when you, when you, when you go to Germany, you go to, you're in Iraq until 2005 and then you have a break. And then in 2009, you go to Germany. Am I missing any, any spots in between there? Well, in, in 2004, we, we went to Germany and then from Germany, I did my first Afghanistan rotation. And that was uh, from March 05 to March 06. And then we came back to Germany. And I was in Germany until uh, probably October, September, October, two thousand seven. Do you want to do you want to speak on your time in Afghanistan? Uh, it, it was, you know, I I always not to get I'm not going to get political. I I always believed more in the war in Afghanistan than I did the war in Iraq, and not that I didn't I didn't support both of them because it wasn't wasn't my 
job to question one way or the other. You know, as elected leadership determined where we were going to go and where we were going to be employed and how we were going to do it. Uh, but just the situation on the ground in Afghanistan, I, I, I felt better about what we were doing there. And even you know, when Anaconda kicked off late 2001 up in 2002, before I was even involved, I'm like, yeah, that's legit. You know, we really need to be there. There's, there's a lot of bad people operating out of Afghanistan. We need to get them out of there. And I, I just never felt the same way about Iraq. I'm like, no, now what are we doing? We're, we're invading. How come he's got what? I'm not sure I'm clear on that. And, you know, we did what we did and Iraq cost what it cost, but I, Ultimately, I always felt better about Afghanistan, and my, but I didn't deploy to Afghanistan until 2005. Mm. Um, and in my mind, for some reason, and it, this is this is on me just being young and, and not studying ahead of time enough, I, I just had in my mind that Afghanistan was going to be another rocky desert environment because, you know, I had seen Rambo 3 and uh, I had seen the living daylights. And I, I just had it pictured in my mind what Afghanistan was going to look like. And it wasn't like that at all. That was a very challenging environment to fly in. The, uh, the terrain and the weather conditions are as varied as any place on earth. It's, it's hot and dusty and desert in some parts. It's green, luscious and mountainous and cold and snowy in other parts. And that is an enemy over there that is tenacious and smart They've been fighting for generations, and it was eye-opening compared to what we did in Iraq. Yeah. So, I, it, go ahead. Yeah, Af Afghanistan was the the first couple of months there were eye-opening for me versus what I was used to fighting in Iraq in two thousand three. That's a that's a smart, well-disciplined enemy. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I that's interesting because I, I think even now I'm sure as you look back on your time and it's hindsight is always 2020 I, I, you you want to believe in what you're there for right and I'm and it's interesting to hear that you believed in your the Afghanistan one much more did you find that um just from your viewpoint as, as you're in there and you're in in the shit so to speak mm -hmm. um just I, just elaborate on those thoughts because I would I'd love to hear just your uh, your 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 idea on that, or your kind of more. You can ex expand upon those ideas more because I'd love to hear them. On on which which part on Iraq or Afghanistan? Yeah, just or... start with Iraq, and then we're going to go to Afghanistan. So, what was it? Did you well, feel I had, that? Go ahead. I, I had spent. I had done a six month deployment in Kuwait in two thousand two. And so that was kind of the writing on the wall deployment. And we deployed over there with a brigade combat team. We, we were out of Hunter Army Airfield in Savannah, Georgia, and the brigade combat team we deployed with was out of Fort Benning. Um, and it was all over there under the guise of, well, we're just doing some joint training exercises with the Kuwaitis. But we, we knew what was happening. We were over there uh, doing, it was the first longbow deployment over there in a desert in environment. And we were doing fire control radar, which was kind of new at the time for the longbow uh, we were seeing if, if it could see tanks and defilade, and we were doing all these things that nobody would come out and say, hey, this is, this is all gathering intel and figuring out how we're going to do the invasion. Nobody would come out and say it, but we knew what we were doing. So we, we came back from that Kuwait deployment in summer of 2002, and by January of 2003, we were back in, over there getting ready to deploy to Iraq, mm -hmm. uh, pre-positioned in Kuwait again. But anyway, long, long story short, I you just never I, I never had that same uh I, I guess confidence would be the word in what we were doing in iraq that i did for afghanistan 
Yeah. Because I, I think Afghanistan was so well articulated the way they tied it to 9-11. Um, you know, the, the attacks were planned from here. The Taliban has allowed Al-Qaeda to operate freely out of here. These people that killed thousands on 9-11 originated, planned, and came under the protection of the Taliban from this country. The Taliban regime is not friendly to America. They harbor terrorists. We're going to take care of that. That was yeah. clear to me completely clear to me. I don't know that anything in Iraq was ever that clear beyond, hey, Saddam Hussein's a bad dude. We need to, we need to get him out of power. But I mean, you're a student of history. You, you know that some cultures, that's what they understand. And it takes that type of personality to keep those uh, kinds of, and it, I think Iraq yeah. being the, the melting pot of Sunni, Shia, Kurdish people all in one area, that are, have not gotten along for thousands of years, they're always going to hate each other no matter what you do. So it takes a strong personality, and I'm not saying I'm pro-Saddam by any means, but it takes that kind of personality to keep them all in check, if, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I think it's very hard for people <clears throat> in the West to understand that dynamic and that right. so many people think that everybody has their their belief system or their structure or they want what they want or you know you some people think that this um ultimate you know you can do whatever be whatever you want to be idea is what everybody wants and you know you look at the saudis or especially you know turk and the kurds and stuff like that some people some places and some cultures really want structure and they really want order and others yes, just have descended into chaos for thousands of years and they have deep 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 um animosity that you're not gonna just come over and wave the flag of democracy and it's going to change the entire paradigm uh, of a place and right and I, and I think what you do especially in an environment like iraq and it proved true is you unite the people on the ground against a common enemy regardless of the fact that you know you're on the ground trying to do good and trying to give people a chance at at your perception of freedom and democracy everybody's coming to fight the evil americans everybody's coming to fight uh, against the invader, for lack yeah. of a better term. Uh, you know why you're there, but they don't know why you're there. All they know is, hey, these dudes are on our turf. And we're, they're in our land. I don't want them here. Let's get them out of here. And that's, as, as Iraq drug on and on and on, it, 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 I even became more, uh, I won't say disillusioned, but I'm just like, hey, what are, what are we doing? You know, what's the end state? What's the ultimate goal? And I think, you know, now the same could be same, said for Afghanistan. But I'll just say that early on, uh, my my conviction and feelings for what we were doing in Afghanistan was a lot stronger than yeah. what we did and we're doing in Iraq. So when you, you get to Afghanistan and, and that is treacherous terrain. I know it's got all that, all the mountains are that slate rock, which is oh, just horrible, horrible place to, to fly in places. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I, um, they used to have a training base up in New Mexico because we had the mountains in New Mexico, the same thing. They're like really high and slate rocked. They're just terrible to hike in. Mm hmm. Um, and uh, those, the people, the way that I'm sure um, it's been described to me from my uh, people who are in the military um, say the same thing. The people who are, live there can navigate those mountains and run up those mountains and run down those mountains far better than even the most athletic person from the United States is going to be able to. Oh, is, it's is unbelievable. That the same thing you heard? Oh, I, I heard it and saw it, lived yeah. it. I, oh, you, you must have been, you, you must have been able to see from up there when, as they ran away or they made their egress. You, you must have been of able course. to see 
of course, I've, I've chased people all the way into Pakistan. And, oh, car, they're in Pakistan. You can't engage. You can't engage. <laughs> but uh, you're right. They, they, they can move like mountain goats. And they're, they're just too- as quick and as, as sure-footed. And, uh, unbelievable the, the way they can move. I would, uh, there was this one time I told this story before, but I was hiking up in the mountains, trying to find these dopers. And then these, we, these little guys from Oaxaca, same thing. Oaxaca is like the Southern state of Mexico. Same thing. They just lived hiking these mountains. Right. So I'm uh-huh. in shape. I go up to the top of this mountain. I go to jump a group of six of them and they take off running. I try to run after them and they make me look stupid. <laughs> I mean, I ended up falling on my face, rolling down the mountain. And before I even get a quarter of the way down the mountain, they're already way down. Um, so it's amazing. Don't you hate that? <laughs> <laughs> After, I learned my lesson, you know, being 25, thinking you can conquer the world versus, you know, a little bit older. You're like, okay, I'm, I'm not getting them. Yeah. I, I worked with Ranger battalions over there. And those are some of the most in shape kids in the world. And you, you come back and talk to them later on the debrief. They're like, God, those guys can move. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy that they are bonding. Yeah. Right. So you, I mean, you must've had a, a, a bird's eye view of all that, the way they're up, they will be up the mountains and, and all that. And that treacherous to me, that must've been hard as hell to fly. Was there a lot of like wind gusts and stuff like that or, or different air patterns? How would you even adjust to that as far as you're flying? Do you have a feel for it as you're in the air? You can exactly tell exactly how you need to um, alter your flight? A lot of it through training and what area you're working in because in an area like Kandahar is, is very arid, a little more low altitude. It's a lot hotter, a lot flatter. But as you get more northeast, up north of uh, Jalalabad, up in to the to the Konar and the Kunar, that you start getting in altitudes of you know, 10, 11,000 feet and helicopters don't like that. When the air gets thin, they just, they don't do as well. The power margins are a lot tighter. Uh, it's just harder to fly. And then wind and terrain analysis as, as the wind gust, just like you said, starts coming through those mountains, it becomes even more challenging to fly. And then if you, if you throw onto that, people start shooting at you and now you've got to start keeping up with where the good guys are, where the bad guys are. Uh, where are the A-10s coming from? Where is the indirect fire supporting me coming from? And it, it becomes a helmet fire real quick to try to keep up with all that. But a- Afghanistan from one end to the other is is a completely different flying environment. And all of it is is challenging, but some of it more than others. Uh, I mean, all again, I can't say it enough, man. Thanks for doing that for so long. That's that had to be a harrowing time just being over there and dealing with that and then being a part of the family and everything that goes into that. So um, uh, it was all, all props it, to you, man. Appreciate that. It's it, adventure of a lifetime. It's, it's, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change. It's so funny. People would think that's a fucked up thing to say, but it's like true. Like you have an experience and I'm not trying to, but like you have an experience that you could never get anywhere else in life. Like where do you have that type of arrangement where you, you can't go back and be like, Hey, I did a, I worked this or I did this, like an accounting job or anything like that. There's nothing in the world that can take that you can take that experience. You have, um, it is people that I th- I'm sure that just would think some people would think it's fucked up to think, but I, I absolutely, I, I'm, I'm, I have dick envy of you, Sarah. Like, <laughs> like, <laughs> like I, you, you got to experience that. So I, I, uh, definitely, well, definitely dick envy. I, I, I have ab and bicep envy of Donnie Waldron. <laughs> so yeah, we're, we're even. Uh, i've seen you 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 got rob with the bot over here i'm telling you um so going back to afghanistan now uh, what were your what were your thoughts over the last year seeing it 
seeing it go back to the Taliban? Yeah, that's tough, Donnie. I mean, that's a great question. Uh, that's probably for a podcast all its own. Uh, emotions, hard, raw emotions for the first couple of weeks to the point where you're you're reaching out to fellow veterans who were there, people that have similar and shared experiences. Hey, man, you watching Fox News right now? Can you believe this? Yeah, I can't believe it. Hey, hey who's over there? Do you know who's over there still? Right? Well, these, these units are still there. They're there. This is what's going on. And you're, you're trying to get hard data from people that you know that are still on the ground is because you, you almost can't fathom what's, what you're seeing on the ground and how, how a global power that has invested as much blood and treasure as we have in that area of the world allows that to, to happen on that scale. And you want, uh, I, I've lost several friends over there. I've got friends that have lost friends and you, you want it. I think it's like any human emotion. You you want that sacrifice to be for something. Yeah. And it was it was hard, especially the first couple of weeks after seeing that. You know, what you're all looking at each other. What what was it all for? What were what were all those missed birthdays, all those missed anniversaries, all those missed events with your kids, your family? Um, what are the all those lost friends? What is all that equipment, all the money, time and effort spent? What was it all for? So that was a lot of raw emotion and a lot of, of leaning on friends and fellow veterans to kind of get through that. And, you know, sadly, with the, with the news cycle the way it is, it, it's, it's all just kind of moved on. And I, I think it's, we're, we're like, what do you say, uh, James Bond is five minutes in the past, five minutes in the future. It's, yep. I think we're, we're already five minutes in the future and Ukraine's the focus now. So we, we've just accepted the fact that, well, yeah, Afghanistan was a shit show. That was a really bad exit. Okay. What are we going, what are we all going to look at now? Yeah. Uh, but Ooh, shiny new it was toy. very, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I'll tell you for, for me personally, it was, it was hard for me. And I had to reach out to some people just to kind of talk about it just because I wanted to know if they were feeling the same things I was. Um, and, and just the, the huge level of frustration and just asking the same questions that I was about, about what was it all for? I can't imagine what you went through. I know I did. I did two episodes on this, um, because even I had a hard time looking at that. Like I, I, I had emotional touch. I can't imagine what you went through. You must people that went there or people that were over there and people that sacrificed so goddamn much. And like you said, your birthdays, you're you're giving all that up. Just time with family, you lose your actual friends. Like it's insane. And then to see it all there, and you talk about. Even to begin, you 1991, you go to Korea. 1999, we're in Korea. Well, we have bases all over the place. Like we have ones in Vietnam, we have them in Korea, we have them in Japan, Germany, Djibouti, all these places. Kuwait, uh, we have bases all over the world. I've it got was, friends in Latvia flying Apaches right now that are they're staring at the Russian bear, waiting to see how this all turns out. You know, that's yeah, that's, they're crazy. They're in Latvia. I mean, we have them everywhere. I don't know what the other than just political you know, whatever that was to just let that go. It was, it was hard to watch. So, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry for you. I, I feel for all, all you and your friends. I mean, just know that, you know, we all appreciate it. And I know even someone who like me, who didn't serve or do anything like that. I can say that I, I just, I just appreciate you guys so goddamn much and all you guys did for I, it. Um, I appreciate that. And that, I, when I rethink it, that's kind of a selfish answer I, I gave you because if you think about, 
when, when I, my last Afghanistan deployment in 2012, 2013, when I was over there, your, our commander said, hey, hey, look, guys, it's a different mission than what you've probably experienced here before. We're here to give the Afghan people an opportunity for a better future. Now, what they do with that opportunity is up to them. But we're here. To, and, and I got behind that, too, just like I did in 2005. I, I felt good about why we were there and what we were doing. So, you know, beyond the, the, the personal sacrifices you make, it's friendships that you develop over there with interpreters, friendships that you develop over there with, with Afghan pilots that were in the special mission wing flying MI-17s, uh, guys that were flying MD-500 little attack aircraft over there guys that I remember working with when you're in more of a training and assist capacity uh, than you were in a direct action. But you, you think in your mind, okay, what happened to those guys? Cause I have, I have no idea. You know, you, when, you, when I left there in 2013, last time I was on the ground in Afghanistan was 2014. That was on an assistance visit with a, with a different organization. I was there for about three weeks. Um, and I, I just felt that things were going in the right direction. I'm like, Hey, that the ANA is going to be able to do this on their own. Once they get their own air capacity up and running, they get their medevac capacity up and running. They're going to be able to do this. They're going to be able to take care of their own country. And one, to see how quickly the Afghan National Army folded. And, and two, to, to know the faces and know the names of, of people you worked with over there on different deployments. And, I, I, you know, I wonder what they're thinking of me. I wonder what they're thinking yeah. You know, where, where are the Americans now? Because, I mean, we just straight cut and ran. And that's 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 a tough pill to swallow for sure. Yeah, especially with someone who, like you who, who spent the whole life doing heroic deeds. And to think that your reputation is now of cowardice or of just leaving or abandoning. And after f forming those relationships and putting so much of your soul into that place, um, I'm sure it was it was very hard. Yeah. Would, would like to see it turn out a lot different and and seeing those the dirty taliban in the afghan national palace and in the embassy wow, that was and, hard to, I, I, I was oh watching i watched i watched al jazeera network for like four hours straight and it just i i just could not get over the sight right the taliban just just having the palace i mean they have yeah. it they had it they it'll, it'll, it to it'll crack your teeth the, the fact that they're you know wiping their ass in the american embassy is just it's gut-wrenching and just see all the equipment that was just abandoned yeah. and piled up at, at Kabul International Airport and all these places that I'm familiar with. You know, I did time over there. I, I, I recognize these places on Fox News as I'm sitting in my house in Houston, Texas. And I'm like, what the heck is going on? Yeah. Um, yeah, it was difficult. It was difficult. I heard, I don't know how true this is. Maybe you have some insight into it, is that um, they say that the whole idea of the way they were supposed to do the Afghan military was supposed to protect it was that they were supposed to get air cover from the United States. And then um, the Afghan military was supposed to protect themselves. And then they said that they, the U.S. didn't give any um, air support during the, the uh, takeover. Uh, was, was that true or was it really just more that uh, the Afghans just, they kind of folded on you. Or they, they never were really interested in it to begin with because there's not really a really sense of what it means to be Afghan. It's so tribal over there. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Donnie. I'm, I'm, I'd be speculating to say that because I'm so far removed having yeah. retired in 2017. Um, you know, you kind of lose your contacts and your, your situational awareness on exactly what's on the ground and what rules of engagement arrangements have been made and 
what's available to support them or what the agreements are. I just, I, I wouldn't be able to answer that one way or the other. I, I know that there was a, a company of Apaches still on the ground. Uh, you remember some of the videos where they were trying to use Apaches to get people off the runway so the C-17s could take off. I mean, that, that blew my mind when I saw that. I'm like, my God, they're using Apaches to clear people off the runway so these planes can take off. But uh, if, if those Apaches were in a position to, to still be able to provide air support, I don't know. I don't know if they were there for security for Kabul. Uh, it would just be speculation on my part. Okay. I, re- I respect not, the uh, not wanting to do speculation. That's, that's uh, great. But, yeah. 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 Never miss a good opportunity to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> that's 26 years of Army. So, that's right. <laughs> so you, you, you retire, you're out 26 years, and now – you're doing um, flight with the ambulance and you're still out there serving people. And, and what, how has it been transitioning from military into civilian life? Uh, tough at times, but I, I think that, you know, we were talking earlier about the prettier just, nurses, right? Uh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> We've got too many dudes in our organization though. Not, <laughs> no, um, I, I felt, I thought air ambulances, it seemed like a good fit once I, I learned more about it because it's still more that quick reaction. You're, you're trying, you're, you're serving in a different capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, you're flying with a purpose. It, it was the first time for me to fly with a crew. I, I, we fly with a single pilot and then we've got a nurse and a paramedic. Um, and just the, the idea and the mindset of, Hey, we need you to fly to this car accident or, Hey, we need you to fly this. This police officer has been shot. Uh, up around Conroe, he needs help. Just the, the mentality of still being able to apply a skill set to help people and be of service. It's just in a different capacity. I mean, you know, it may not be firing a 30 millimeter cannon from a helicopter. Now it's trying to get gifted people that have exceptional life-saving skills to a scene so that they can do what they do. I'm just driving ultimately. I tell people all the time, I've got the easiest job on the helicopter. All I'm doing is getting those professionals where they need to be so that they can do what they do. But it was it was a good fit for me. No 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 shift is the same. You never know what you're going to do, where you're going to fly, uh, who you're going to help, what you're going to see. Uh, so I I like that aspect of it. And I kid with most people. I said mainly I just don't want to figure out what to wear every day. And in this job, I continue to wear a <laughs> uniform. <laughs> uh, so when you that just to just touch back on. So what, for the Apaches, when you are are engaging in an enemy. Are you huh? the one actually doing all the aiming and flying, or is there a co-pilot, or how does it actually work? I, pardon my uh, it, de- it depends. So the way the Apache set up, it's a tandem seat helicopter so that you've got they, – they sit front to back. You don't sit side by side and hold hands like they do in a Black Hawk helicopter. You sit <laughs> front to back. So the, there's a set of controls in each station, so you can fly from either seat. Um, you can fire all three weapon systems from either seat. But primarily, the division of crew duties is the front seater is what's called a CPG or a co-pilot gunner. He is going to work the front sight, which is the MTADS, is the Modernized Target and Designation System. And it contains uh, uh, what's called the day TV. It contains a forward-looking infrared, a laser rangefinder designator. He's going to control that sight. And it's got different levels of magnification depending on which sight you're using. He's usually going to be in charge of operating the missile system, and uh, for more deliberate engagements, he's going to be in charge of firing the gun. Uh, the backseater, uh, just the, what's just referred to as the pilot, he's going to primarily fly the aircraft, 
he's going to do coordination on the radios as far as air traffic control and coordinate with other air assets and talk to the ground commander as well. You, you've usually got a division of duties between the front and the back seat on who's going to talk to the ground commander. It's usually the most experienced guy with the best uh, situational awareness. And the back seat has the best situational awareness for firing the rocket system. Uh, and I, depending on what we were doing at the time, uh, I would sometimes keep the gun slave to my helmet side in the back seat uh, just to defend the aircraft in case you had somebody pop out to try to take a quick shot at you. You could protect the aircraft that way. Uh, so long, long answer to a short question. You can fly from either seat. You can fire all three weapons from either seat, but primarily uh, the, the front seater is going to have the missile system, the sights, and most of the radios. The back seat is going to fly the aircraft be responsible for close-in security and generally shoot the rockets. Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, that, just keep those answers as long as possible because it is. It's a nice thorough answer because I, I really had no <laughs> idea. So I was always one. I'm sure many in the audience are wondering the same stuff. Um, so back to the hospital. So you, you've been doing how long? How much longer do you think you're going to be flying these helicopters? Uh, see, I, I turned 52 this year. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm still in decent health, still, still passing my medicals. I'd, I'd like to think at least till I'm 60, maybe a little bit longer. Uh, my, my wife and I both have family in Arkansas. We both grew up in Arkansas. I think ultimately we've got, we've got our sights set on, on, on getting to Arkansas and, and retiring up there. And uh, I, I still enjoy the job. I still enjoy flying. Even, even after I get out of flying for, for a living, I'd, I'd like to continue to, to fly recreationally if I could. So I was, like I said, it's just uh, it's just what I enjoy. I, yeah. I enjoyed being a pilot, and I, I continue to do it. So I, I'd like to think probably some, somewhere somewhere between sixty and sixty five, I'll probably hang the helmet up. <laughs> well, that's great, man. I, I, I well, again, thank you so much for your service, and I got to do one last question before we go. All well, right, we didn't we didn't talk bond at all. I feel shortchanged here. Man. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I know I was so selfish on this one. All right, so what's your favorite what's your favorite Bond helicopter moment? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to go out and say, I, 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 everybody doesn't care much. I should say care much. I, I don't, the diamonds are forever helicopter fight at the end around the oil platform. I just always thought that was great because I was already a helicopter junkie at, at that point. And you know, to see them used in that capacity, I, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> that is, that was, um, that's a good answer too. But diamonds are forever I, I, is, 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 it's, it's, uh, it's got its moments. I think it's a little underrated. I think it's a little underrated. And, and I'll go also back to Spy Who Loved Me only because I fell in love with the Lotus Esprit early on. And it's kind of a bad helicopter moment for a helicopter pilot. But when it goes submarine mode in the Lotus Esprit, and then they shoot the Jet Ranger down with the uh, with the missile that fires out the top. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a great moment. What's your... Uh, sweet helicopter moment. <laughs> <laughs> Those are great. So what's your... Let, let me give you your give me your top three bonds and your bottom three bonds. Movies. Yep. Uh, top three. I'm gonna have to say Skyfall, Goldfinger, and I'm not gonna say Moonraker. That'll irritate people. <laughs> uh, probably Age. the spy. 
the spy who loved me either either the spy who loved me or for your eyes only because i i grew up as a as a roger moore guy and then i had to backtrack to sean connery and then i you know like everybody else i've, I've got a man crush on daniel craig like most people uh, <laughs> that's great so yeah, that's, that's a great I'll, top I'll three. To, uh the bottom ones you know, I'm not a big No Time to Die fan. I, uh, I, I, going bottom three I, with I, No Time to Die. Well, I don't know that it's my bottom of the bottom three. I just, I, I, I couldn't get past the, I have loved you every moment. It's oh, just yeah. so not Bond. Uh, but yeah. I, I think I'll, I, I take the Zeritsky approach. I, it, great movie. I just don't know that it's a great Bond movie, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I could see that uh, anything else. It just it, it, and the reason you know it sat on my shelf. I had bought it for when it came out on DVD. I pre-ordered it. It came out on Blu-ray. Or, and uh, mm-hmm. it sat in my shelf for like a month before I even picked it up and watched it again. It just, the reasons I watch Bond are not what No Time to Die was. It just doesn't I, have I'm that. with you. It doesn't have that. I, yeah, I, re-watch, I finally did rewatch it. And it's, there's some parts. But for me, I went right back to my old Bonds. It's just for, for my rewatch and right. why I watched them, No Time to Die doesn't encapsulate that. I, I say it with the utmost respect for the way the movie was shot and some of the action sequences. Uh, but as far as a Bond movie, I think it's a, a little bit lacking. Um, so it, that that would be one of my bottom three. And then I'd have to probably say <laughs> when I was a kid, I loved it because I was a Star Wars super freak. That was Moonraker and I was a space shuttle freak. But <laughs> now that I'm a little older, Moonraker is a little goofy. Uh, and then I'm not a big uh, "You Only Live Twice" fan. With the, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand you know, why they were trying to make Bond look Japanese just by changing his eyebrows and giving him a haircut. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's wrong. a little, little odd. <laughs> yeah, it's too bad because the book is so damn good. So you know, See, you just, you, I, I just got back from watching Batman, and I know that you had seen it too. Oh, oh my God, so good, right? And do, so do you good. Hope, do you hope that Eon? kind of reacts to the way that that movie went on and that it was back to yes there was great action there was some cool stuff but it really was about telling a story again and right right i hope and i love that it was about being a detective and figure things out and go to crime scenes and be immersed in the crime scene but um, that's batman right i mean if you that grew is up with batman. the comics batman is is more detective than he is ass whippings right yeah and it's the same thing with bond i feel bond really at, at the think, heart of it is a detective right right i i want to see i would like to see eon just get back to having one movie be a story in and of itself rather than these arcs that yeah. they you know you don't have to tie them all together you don't have to have a marvel universe and bond they don't all have to uh be be connected through one central thing i just get back to bond having a mission and and it being a really cool story in really cool places with a lot of action and and let him let him be bond again that's i that's why i like quantum of solace even more now is because i think that's more the bond that everybody wants and appreciates and i think you just got a little bit lovey-dovey in no time to die <laughs> yeah yeah it's funny you're, you're gonna look back and then the ones that go up in value are gonna be things like quantum of solace that's just you know you got an hour and 45 minutes just fun cool stuff and then call it a day right we don't have to have it doesn't all have to be an art house movie correct (laughs) all right so you got a chance you got a chance to fly a helicopter and have your co-pilot be any bond girl who's going to be in the Mm. helicopter but you you, and you get to fly two-part question i'm gonna ask who's your bond girl and where are you flying her in the helicopter oh that's a good one 
So can you go like new and old? You it is your <laughs> buddy. You can do whatever you want with it. <laughs> it's your uh, it's, okay. So it's your pick. Let's see. O- old school Bond. I, I I never got over my crush on Molly Peters, who you know Patricia Fearing from the the Shrublands Clinic in yeah. Thunderball. Okay. All right. Go with the nurse. So I hot. Is, is is she not hey. hot though? No, she's great. I can see I can see her as your flight medic. And. For modern Bond, also a little bit left field. I won't say Anna de Armas Waldron because I know that's completely <laughs> off limits. No, that's completely off limits. <laughs> so I'm going to have to – and I, I never know how to say her last name correctly, but I've never gotten over her. Gemma Archer, Archerton from Quantum oh, Solace, Strawberry Fields. Yeah, R- R- go with I'm, the redhead. All right. Such a great quality. She's so I, – I can't put my finger on it, but I'd sure like to. <laughs> that's great so where are you where are you flying them and what in what helicopter i'll, I'll give you even that bonus in what helicopter right, so and to where i think we're going to get in an eight an airbus h160 and we are going to fly to zermatt switzerland Ooh, zermatt switzerland very good why, there go. why why there have you been there or was it one of your favorite spots to vacation have, have haven't been there uh would like to go there i love love switzerland i've been to some places in switzerland i never got to visit zermatt um, but have it, have an appreciation for the scenery and, and the, uh, the environment there around Vermont. So that's, that, that'd be my answer. That's a great, it's a great exotic location. And I always appreciate a guy who would want to go to the mountains and not to the beach. <laughs> so, so some people are beach guys. I'm a mountain guy too. I find myself, if I'm going to pick where we're going, we're going to a big giant mountain. I don't know. I, there's something about it. Um, if, if Strawberry Fields and I are going anywhere, I don't want her to be able to get away easily. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, my man, thank you so much for doing this. You were so good. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your 26 years in the military. Thank you for your additional time as a flight medic, uh, a lifetime of, of beneficence. And I that's beneficence and valor. So thank you so much for everything you've done. Uh, my pleasure. I appreciate that so much, Donnie. And I really appreciate you having me on here. And uh, I hope people people find this interesting. So uh, always always good to to talk to one of the the pillars of the Bond community, Mr. Quantum himself. <laughs> I'm just a peon, but I appreciate you taking your time, buddy. Thank you so much. And uh, again, thank you so much for your time. You bet, Donnie. I appreciate it. Stay in touch. We'll do. All right, see you, buddy. I want you.